0: Don't be an asshole, Daddy. Oh, Jesus, please help me not to become an asshole.
1: Enlighten me
0: if by the off chance it's already too late. I don't want to let my opinions dumb down my actions or fall asleep to the sweet sound of my own.
1: Hey everybody, welcome to episode 20 of Recovering Asshole, the podcast where we unpack the invisible knapsack of privilege and figure out we're in this for the long haul. Hey, I'm your host, Dr. Andy Blazak, back after a long break. It has been a while. Let me tell you, if you're a regular listener, I've been a little busy. I've been traveling. So here's all the places I've been since the last uh, interview I did on Recovering Asshole. Uh, New York City, where I was at an event with... Gloria Steinem, uh, Chicago, uh, then Abu Dhabi for a UN meeting, and then uh, London, then Oslo for a conference, and I was actually supposed to be in Toronto last week, and I just had to cancel, just been doing so much, so much traveling, a lot of work. Um, some of it has to do with the fact that there was a hate crime that happened here last spring in Portland, Oregon. Uh, it was pretty well known, so you might know the details. A uh, guy connected to the alt right, white supremacist, known around town for Zig Highland and harassing minorities on mass transit, uh, began to harass two young African American teenage girls, one of them wearing a hijab, telling him to get out of his country, yada, yada, yada. Uh, three gentlemen on the train that they were on on a Friday afternoon, um, tried to get him to stop and get him to back down. He pulled out a knife and stabbed all three of them pretty brutally, killing two of them, almost killing the third and so our city has been kind of reeling since and so one of the things I've been doing is I'm on the, the committee with the mass transit uh, authority that picked the artist that was painting the mural that was going to become the uh, tribute wall at the station where these two men died um, and so there was a lot of work around that and I also I'm back to teaching which takes up a lot of my time I should be interviewing my students that's who I'd be interviewing uh, anyway, we're back, we're back, and we've got more episodes ahead. It just wanted to take a while. You know, the podcasting thing is you can take your own time. The guys at Fabcast, my favorite podcast, take their own sweet time getting a new episode up. They kill me, making them making me wait for a new episode of Fabcast, so I'm sorry uh, if you've been waiting for episode 20. Here it is. So, speaking of this murder uh, that happened in Portland last May, I wanted to have this conversation with our guest for a while to kind of talk about this. We're going to be talking to Simab Husseini, who is with CARE, Oregon. That's the Council for American Islamic Relations. Uh, A young Muslim fellow who's got a lot to say and is very involved. He's uh, very active uh, with Unite Oregon and uh, works with me through the Coalition Against Hate Crimes. And uh, just a great spirit in the city of Portland, uh, and talk a little bit about the state of being a Muslim in Portland in Trump's America. And I wanted to kind of just pick his brain about the impact of a hate crime like this, ha- that this happened in Portland on, on the Muslim community in general. And also how he does the work that he does to try to make things a safer place in this weird climate that we're in. So let's l- talk to Mob, and we'll have this conversation and then uh, listen in and we'll see what we learned at the end. All right. Tell us a little bit about how you ended up in in such a a, a homogenous city as Portland, Oregon.
0: I met a girl. <laughs> oh, that's always, there.
1: It is the love of a good woman. That's nah, always the story.
0: I'm I'm born and raised in Los Angeles, and um, between uh, West LA, Inglewood, um, uh, South Central. Um, you know, I had grown up through these areas, and. You know, it was it was amazing. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of growth. Uh, there were, I was the one kid that would like break out of certain groups and be friends in multiple groups. You know, um, whether it was like the hip hop crew in high school or the um, uh, the crew that was trying to regulate peace on the campus in middle school, uh, or the the crew that was always ditching mm-hmm. <laughs> and stuff like that, or smoking out or whatnot. Um, uh, to just uh, 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 to different crews that was just my uh, my neighborhood Muslim peeps that we played a lot of basketball with um, uh, to just my best friends who I consider my brothers you know that we kind of grew together in Inglewood um, uh, and we're still a tight unit to this day like over twenty years later. It's crazy saying that. Yeah. Shit, I'm old. <laughs> but yeah, man. I mean, growing up through that, I think, you know, I always had a sense of justice. Like, you know, my parents they were very much scared of the community that they were living in. Um, we didn't have a lot of family around scared us. Scared in what way? Well, you know, um, it was unknown. It was unknown to them, right? Like my dad comes from India, uh, raised with the silver spoon, but lost everything. You know, um, joined the British Army uh, or Air Force just to just to leave India, um, and um, and uh, eventually met my mom in in England. Uh, my mom is from the Fiji Islands. You know, uh, an island girl, uh, not a lot of privilege, but still a lot of love you know, that she grew up with. Well, I guess a certain sense of privilege. Her her brothers became very notable politically on the good side of things, like uh, where the the tribal uh, aspect of Fiji really respected my mom's side of the family, Mm -hmm. which was hard because there was some issues regarding uh, land ownership, and a lot of the Indians were starting to become majority stakeholders in land ownership. So there's a lot of politics involved with that. My mom's side of the family, they were they were, they were were the peacekeepers, you know, as far as that side of the community was concerned. So some political activism there, and um, some social consciousnesses too, where my dad comes from, from Hyderabad, India. And then these things kind of put together um, allows me to understand, okay, well, it gives me a sense of being. Like, I've always had a certain sense of like wanting to fight for what was right. Being the skinny little Indian kid with a weird name who dressed funny, and being the one picked on, you know, for standing out, uh, uh, for standing out to learning to fight for myself, uh, to getting the respect of my peers and my friends in my neighborhood. uh, But it being a very scary thing for my parents because they come from wildly different places where they were born and raised within their own community, Indian community, uh, very. Very thick and heavy in India. Moving into England for my dad, uh, he was still very, mon- very well amongst his Indian community and his white friends. Uh, you know, it was it was it was a pre it was it was an easy merge. You know, uh, for my dad, uh, my mom, growing up in this really wonderful island with a network of uh, like one of thirteen children. You know, um, and uh, being the uh, the youngest of the three daughters. Um, and, and, um, and so there was a lot of beauty and privilege in growing up with that but also closeness in a network and not a lot of diversity so to say mm-hmm. that they had to deal with other than you know when they both left their homelands and met in England eventually it was you know the westernizing the philosophy of being westernized was romantic to a lot of people coming from these foreign countries and so, you know, there wasn't like what we see today, the whitewashing of things is what we consider now. Um, so when they came to America eventually, after getting married and having my sister in England, when they came to America in the, in the early 70s, um, they moved into a neighborhood that was pretty awesome in West L.A. But then after having me and um, my dad had to go back, uh, leave the country because he was working for a shipping company, MerzKlein, he was gone for about a year. Um, we were in West L.A., and it was nice, cozy, comfortable, um, but I was a tiny little kid. I was like three, four years old. We had to pack up and leave. My, my dad couldn't sustain, paying mm. for both places, and he had to stay in UAE longer. And so we pick up and we move, and we go to uh, UAE, Spent 10 months in Fiji uh, on the way there, which was excellent. I remember sure. every bit of it. Um and then we lived in UAE, and I came back when I was 11. When we came back, wildly different. The same West LA was starting to get a little bit rambunctious. Um, it was I was older. Maybe it didn't change. Maybe a lot of the kids uh, uh, grew up, and there was more uh, than a little kid would be subjected to. Like at the age of 4 or 5, I'm coming back like 9, 10, 11. Well, I was 11 years old, coming back at that age. and. My parents were very afraid. Now I'm socially working amongst these kids that they of completely different social backgrounds. You know, yeah, black kids, Latino kids, uh, some Filipino kids in the neighborhood as well. But just the diversity, the melting pot of it happening out there, there was a lot of stigma, and a lot of, a lot of stereotyping that my parents were using, that they were that they had accepted and wasn't wasn't good, and they were telling me these things. But I have to still walk out the house in the morning. Walk to school about six, seven blocks, eight, nine blocks, whatever it was. And I'm, and I'm catching up with friends along the way that are of these backgrounds that my parents are afraid of, in a way, you know. Then I'm walking back home with these kids, my parents are still at work. And so I'm hanging out with them in their house and their parents. And I'm seeing the beauty. So I'm seeing that they're wrong can't really sell them this it's mm. they're not buying it as easily and you know it comes from a good place you can say but at the same time it was ignorance yeah, sure. and i'm seeing this and i saw this and it it made sense to me and i and these and and then you start putting together your own parents background at a very young age because you still want to respect your parents you want to know where they're coming from and you want to see why where they go wrong so you can have sympathy for them and stuff so these things happen, I get this. I feel like that developed uh, this sense of understanding, you know, between cultures and where we go wrong and how easily it happens. And then I had to grow up and get a job and start working and not worry about any of these issues, worry about taking care of myself. And then I moved up here with one of those responsible jobs that I had, and we were opening an office, a satellite office here in uh, Portland about 16, 17 years ago that's where two years, uh, at the end of two years, that's where I met my wife. Uh, we hired her, and then she came back to Southern California with us, back to our main office. And we were pretty much together since. So this July will be 15 years. Yeah. So wow. that's my long story wow. about how I got here.
1: Well, what, was your, what was your idea about Portland before you got here? I mean, what did you think Portland would be?
0: I had no idea. Yeah. I had no idea. It was fun. It was an idea, not worrying about the social makeup of it, but just a different place that was way different. When I came up here for work, um, you know, I, I wasn't like the traditional Muslim, you know. I, I I still acknowledged my faith, but at the same time, you know, I drank, I dated, um, I went out. I didn't eat pork. That's the one place where I drew my line. It's one place where I drew my line. But um, other than that, you know, I wasn't, with a Muslim community, I wasn't doing this or following any kind of line and and um, and even right now like I'm not holier than thou or anything but at the same time you know uh, I, through time I've been able to gain a good respect and understanding of why I'm Muslim, why it's important and uh, my wife actually helped me a lot with that And uh, I don't encourage her to become Muslim But I encourage her to be who she is. Like, I'm not telling her to convert or anything like that. And to this day, I'm not going to tell her to anything. Because I think I've come this far through this relationship because she's allowed me to be able to question um, my incorrect biases and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. you know, and challenge my beliefs. And by challenging what I was taught and then learning... Uh, what what is actually written, what what actually is a Muslim, that moderation is key and stuff like that, you know. I, w- I felt like I strengthened my faith since meeting her. And I was like, I don't want to mess that up, you yeah, know. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, my makeup of Portland was just pretty much a lot of fun back then, sure. you know. But, I it's, worry but about it's such, um,
1: the reason I ask, it's such a white place. I mean, I came from Atlanta, yeah. and it just struck me how white. And, of course, it's white for a very yeah. specific, very racist history. Yeah. But I, I, I wonder when people of color, especially if you don't grow up here and you move here, what th- that sense must be of being in a place where there's so little diversity. It
0: all depends on how you supposedly, quote-unquote, conform. Like yeah. So when I came here 16, uh, 16, 17 years ago, I came here... With the crew, um, my uh, my coworkers, my boss, um, Filipino, my boss, uh, 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 some Koreans in uh, in our group, a few Indian guys like me, um, uh, uh, some uh, 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 some black members in in our team. It was we were just a diverse melting pot, and we lived together while we were oh, up here. We got okay. these business apartments, so we were kind of cocooned with ourselves. So when we go out as a group. We'd go out as as a group. We'd have fun. We'd socialize. It was almost kind of like a cult, but it wasn't. We were literally (laughs) running, uh, starting a satellite office up here. We were excited for the responsibility that we had and uh, executing that job for two years as a marketing office. Um, So it was a lot of fun. But at the same time, it allowed us to kind of still be a little bit insulated. There was one time where uh, we got pulled over and... For absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. And it suddenly threw me back to my days of like cruising in LA. Like, you know, I'm slossing in Rim with the homies. We're in the we're in the Volkswagen. We're cruising down the street. I'm driving. We get pulled over. Everybody else gets pulled out of the car. I'm treated fine, you know. Um and again this is post nine eleven, but at the same time I was the Indian guy still, right? Mm. The 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 fear of the brown man hadn't hit the peak where we're at right now. So I was considered the Indian kid, right? And, and I ran with that a lot when I was young. You know, I bailed my friends out of, out of a lot of trouble because, oh, they're going with C-Mob. He's the Indian kid. He's such a nice guy, right? Which I was probably the troublemaker, but, I mean. <laughs>
1: well, it's interesting to think about, you know, there is a ranking. There is sort of a hierarchy is. of of the victims of racism yeah portland has its own history of this and how we rank you know northern italians above southern italians because they're how my dad grew
0: up my dad has fair skin just like you if you met my dad um uh, you'd hear him speak you'd think that he's a white englishman you wouldn't tell that my dad is indian so my dad has no complexion right um as as far as that he looks like an old white man uh, uh today and um And uh, with a British accent uh, of some sorts, Indian-British accent, kind of subtle. But, you know, so... And that's a completely different story. We can talk about some other time. Um, But, uh, you know, he grew up with that classism, that that sense of pride for being the lighter-skinned Indian amongst... uh, uh, with darker-skinned Indian people out there and having more privilege uh, without necessarily addressing it to his culture, uh, to his color, but more attributes that you know, that will help him get by. And I don't, I don't know what goes with that. I don't understand that sense of privilege because I apparently came out darker. Yeah. But, um, and so, you know, it was just, we had a lot of fun. But um, that, that opened my eyes when um, my boy got pulled out the car and he was being treated like shit. And I was like, this is just like LA. This is no paradise either. Mm. It's just like L.A. There's no paradise. You know, I'm Hands on, 10 and 2, hands on the wheel, engines off, windows down, telling the officers, you know, like, um, you know, not trying to eyeball them, uh, not trying to stare at them. You know, the whole programming just came right back. Wow. It just came all right back. And I was just like, officer, yes, sir, no, sir. Um, please, sir, he's okay, sir. He didn't do anything, sir. It's all right, sir. We're, oh, we're okay, sir. There's nothing going on, sir. We're leaving work, sir. We're just going home so we can change and go out and have fun. Um, where do you plan on having f- Just being like overly compliant, right? Yeah. Just trying not to get my ass yanked out the car either. And, I was, and that was like probably a, a month or two before we wound up going back to Southern California. And when I left, I was just like that. That had me like shook for like the last few months that I was here. For sure. You know, I was just like, oh, shit don't get pulled over yeah and you either. know that's one of the
1: things I mean this whole theme of privilege that's one of the things that it never crosses my mind when yeah. I, get, I mean I'm, I'm happy to argue with a cop yeah and tell him to fuck off and yeah. I know I know people in your department yeah. <laughs> I you know much of our conference not I, I also try to be and I, I want I want to be clear that I'm also nice with our law enforcement officers yeah. but I feel I feel free to be more confrontational right. in a way that you might not. Right. that I would never cross my mind that, oh, my gosh, if I'm not compliant, I might get yeah. shot.
0: Yeah. All kinds of shit like that. Yeah. So that, that, that just kind of, that kind of goes down. And so when we, when we left back to uh, uh, Southern California, I was like, God damn, you know. Um, uh, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, we were down there together for like five years. Um, we, uh, we got married while, because we were living down there for five years, uh, her family, her entire ecosystem is up here on her mom and dad's side, like Filipino pride. They're all here. The Philippines is here now Mm -hmm. on her, on her side of the family. So, um, we were always up here two, three, maybe four times a year, depending on the occasion. So I got to really understand the economics a lot better than just being a person with an apartment dweller, working, going out and having fun, drinking and stuff like that in the evening. Being with her, I found a sense of pride and faith again. Uh, I found a way to um, kind of have a sense of authority when it comes to like uh, 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 an imam saying something that's a little bit wrong and just having a discussion with them, taking on these challenges a little bit more because I was really enlightened with my ignorance, Mm. you know, my homophobia, uh, you know. Uh, it was pretty bad. I didn't realize, like, how bad I was when it came to, like, um, uh, saying saying fag and stuff like that mm. casually, you know, as if it was fine. And, you know, she loved me. She really respected me and loved me for because she saw who I was. But then she also saw these things that she was like, you got to get rid of this shit. You, you it's got so it. interesting,
1: you know. I just, um, I just presented this paper about women leaving, helping men leave the white supremacist movement. It's sort of a similar thing. Mm-hmm. Women are kind of more in touch with the our oppressive nature yeah. and because as women they experience it daily. And, yeah. But if they love the person, they can, they can. I you know I hate to say that women save men because that's not their job but can talk some sense into us it's
0: kind of tiring for them I think <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that yeah. that they do have to kind of take on that role at times you know um, and, and and I found a lot of pride in that and then and then she wound up like using examples of muslim women that that she I was kind of introducing her environment due to the environment of me being muslim You know, um, just kind of like introducing her to different people in different places. She was talking about how in control they are, you know, over their households, over their men. And she related to that. She got along with that. And then I started kind of peeling back the the patriarchy, you know, and I was like, and, and I was like, wow, man. Yeah, we really fool ourselves into being in power, <laughs> right? I've heard that before.
1: So, so you think you're in charge, but you're not
0: you're, but charge. you're not. Yeah. And so it was just really enlightening. It was a growing. It, she was just. I was maturing faster than the speed of light just oh, by just by being with her. That's cool. And, uh, and so yeah, I mean, because we had that familiarity coming up and down to Portland all the time, we understood that economically, if we had children, it'd be easier to live up here. Lo and behold, after we got married. We had our first daughter. We're living in an apartment in Southern California, and it's not working. We're not, mm. We want more kids, and it's not going to happen in a six hundred and fifty square foot apartment for mm. eighteen hundred bucks a month. You know. That's crazy. So that's we packed bags. We came up here, and when we came up here, uh, my eyes were a lot wider. You know, in that span of five years that I was with her, a lot had grown in me. You know, and I started to see things a little bit better. I was a lot more devout about my faith. I wanted that responsibility to be able to be part of the community, mm-hmm. to do something, you know, and help people see things a little bit uh, progressively, you know. Sure. And, and because I think through that there's a way to be able to bring communities that are tend to faction off in their own sects.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of, I mean, certainly you have to deal with it more than I do, but there is such a, a narrow scope in the non-Muslim world, world about Islam and, and the the tenets and, and, you know, the belief. In fact, it's just as diverse as any other faith in the world. Right? Right. You know, they get sort of one image from the 6 o'clock news or from right. R- Rush Limbaugh uh, or, Neil, or Mike Savage. They get sort of one particular picture of it. In right. fact, there's this incredible variety of voices just like there is in the Jewish community and the Catholic community. I mean, there's just... Across the board, yeah, um, and it's always helpful to be reminded of right. that, because the the outside world sees it as this very monolithic, right, one thing. Right. In fact, there's a wide variety. When I talk to people about uh, feminist Muslims, they're like <laughs> their jaws drop. Right. Yeah, there are feminists. There are a lot of <laughs> Muslims who are feminists, and feminists who are Some Muslim. of them
0: are flying fighter jets for their countries. So yeah. Right.
1: Right. Um, I'm going to talk about this thing that happened in Portland and kind of the impact. I mean, now that we're talking about being in Portland. So we do know that after 9-11, hate crimes against Muslims increased by one measure 800%. I mean, it was just sort of this thing that came out of the blue um, and then, you know, kind of leveled off a little bit. And then, you know, over the last few years, we've seen this ramping up of hate and rhetoric. And then we had this incident in Portland one year ago on the MAX train, which was, the victims were white males, but it started as kind of an anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant attack. And when, we, when these things happen, we know that the, it's not just the victims that are impacted, the immediate victims. It's like ripples that go out. Yeah. And if you could take us back a year ago to your experiencing, you know, how you heard about that attack on the train, and then what, what you saw it do within your family, imagining within your family it mm-hmm. had an impact, but also within your community.
0: You know, I met, I met Zucker last year in February, and it was just a chance encounter. Um, I'd been looking to see some kind of civil liberties protections for Muslim um, hit the ground here in the state of Oregon because yeah the problems it was really getting out of hand especially the fact that the administration was going to change to what it is now yeah. it was incredibly frightening incredibly frightening it was like okay well they say it's going to get worse before it gets better and it's not gotten worse yet this is the build to that yeah. right and that's that was my that was my my world view at that moment and still is kind of and um, so when Zoccar and I met and we started talking about doing this and not sure if it would be care or not or if it'd be something that we would build, but it was it definitely centered around the idea that this is the only camaraderie that's been working, that's actually looks like it's gonna provide a solution. He and I. Like we're asking each other questions, we're finding the answers. I found finally found somebody that's willing to jump in there, you know, and ask these same questions. And and, and with the background that he has, I was like, this is not a chance, actually. This is a blessing, right? Uh-huh. Like, I've been praying for having a guy like this to come around. And um, two weeks before the stabbings happened, we had already talked to CARE. Um, and they were, they were like, okay, there were several parties that were interested as far as... And CARE is trying to figure out, you know, how they would go about it and who it would, who it would be. Um, and Zacher and I were like, well, we're not necessarily going to wait. You know, when something comes up, we're going to take it on, even ourselves. And there was an issue that took place in Eugene two weeks prior to the right. stabbings, um, where a guy barged into the mosque, threatened people, threatened their lives through the women and children's side. So literally, he's actually threatened the lives of women and children. Right. And it was two weeks even before Ramadan starts. And terrified the living hell out of these people tries to come back the next day, walking through a park, gets caught up with people because this man is just distressed and he's aimed and he's ready to go to this mosque again to fulfill supposedly his threatening promise or whatever it was. And gets caught up with parents in, the, in there and call uh, cops get called on him right when he's before he gets to the mosque, cops intercede and get him. That case goes kind of. But that's when Zakra and I were like, we're not going to let it just come and go, we're going to let the city of Eugene know that there's going to be a Muslim presence that's going to sit on top of them. Uh, we uh, So Zakhar got on top with the DA. Um, started. We started communicating with the uh, <coughs> Eugene police uh, department. Um, so their DA, the Eugene police, talking to the victims, uh, getting everything, getting an understanding, getting a frame-up of everything, basically kind of doing... Uh, an informal intake of events, putting everything together, wrapping it up, and then representing to the DA, saying that look, you may be getting some aspects of the story, here's a complete picture that we Mm -hmm. can help you with. So we proved to be kind of assets in a way, where we weren't confrontational but we were saying, look, (coughs) this is going to be happening from now on. Mm -hmm. Right, We're going to be organizing behind any kind of hate crime that happens against Muslims. Um or those that are targeted to be Muslim. You know, if a person is approached uh, and targeted because they're thought to be Muslim, but they were a Sikh, we're going to be there for that, right? Yeah, so passed. so we we wanted to start casting <coughs> that presence, and we did it. And we. Uh, I would give a lot of the credit to Zakhar. His direction was amazing, and we laid that stamp. And so as soon as the MAX train stabbings happened... Um, Zacher and I, we were just like, we, as soon as we found out about it, we were messaging each other. And mid-flight, CARE contacts us and says, hey, you know what? Go. You guys are CARE Oregon ad hoc. Mm-hmm. Go. you know, We're like, cool. Now we felt like we had backing of the national so the organization. National, the national, national backed us. They yeah. said, okay, go ad hoc. Uh, You're CARE Oregon ad hoc. Go. That's it. You guys are it. You guys are doing it. Because they saw what we did with the Eugene um, uh, hate crime. And so that's where we kind of got in. And I got to admit, I was scared like a motherfucker. Like I was like, I've been looking for someone to do this kind of representation for however many years I've been here in Oregon now, which is at this point... Uh, last year it was like eight years, and i didn't think it would be me, but at the same time, I was not i i, I was but I thought that fear was also well guiding because mm-hmm. I was like i I feel impassioned about this. I really care for what happened. I care for the girls on that train. I care for the two lives that were lost I care for the 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 way and the reason why they lost their lives and who uh, and who took those two lives down. And for the one that's sitting in the hospital bed, I really, really, really cared for this, you know. And my wife, she just was like, you know, she just saw me like as a person was just like on a mission all of a sudden, right? And I felt like she was looking at me like, like she was like, okay, <laughs> and go, you know. You know, it's, uh, this, and it was, it, it was surreal to the extent that it wasn't a great thing, but I felt like, it's absolutely where I belong. It's what I need to be able to do for our Muslim community. And it's the type of... Uh, it, it's a type of horri- horrific situation that nobody wants to have happen. But it can only get worse if we don't start addressing it at this point aggressively. Can you, can
1: you talk a little bit about the impact on the, on the community? Uh, first of all, I want to have your impact. I want to just make it a little more personal. Yeah. As a father you know, what it must have felt like. Uh, If you could speak to that, I mean, just as a father of... of, of, I mean, I'll just say, I think about this with regards to school shootings, as I send my little one to daycare, and at some point, you know, every time there's news about a school shooting, it's no longer an academic issue for me. As a parent, I think, is there going to come a point when I have to, you know, go to my daughter's school and retrieve her body? So I have to think that as a Muslim, when something like this happens, as Muslim parents... There's this this sort
0: of intense reaction. It's the whole concept of a parent is going to react the exact same way as any other parent would, regardless of faith. But the Muslim aspect comes in there because the fact that I look at my daughters and I'm like, you know, they could be bystanders who get caught up in a shooting. They could be the people who jump in to rescue, or they could be the target because they are brown, um, because they are Muslim. Uh, Whether they choose to wear a hijab uh, on that date. Like, my children are young, and they haven't decided if they want to wear a hijab or not. you know, And that's fine, but I have three daughters, and if one of them decides to maybe they want to start wearing a hijab, um, it's like, I don't want to be afraid of that. And one of them was targeted because she was wearing a hijab. And she doesn't wear it anymore because these things are scarring, you know. And I don't blame anybody for being afraid of their identity when they're out in public. I don't have to dress up as a Muslim, right? Like a a guy, like, I don't have to wear uh, 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 the the kufi uh, or whatnot, you know. Um, But women, they make choices... Uh, whether through their culture, uh, it's culturally driven for them to wear it, or they're making a choice to wear it. Um, but that identity is extremely scary when it comes to what happened. And I'm looking at my three daughters, and I'm like, you know, I dumbed it down. I didn't... I, I, I was like, lives were lost when I talked to them. But at the same time, like, you know, it was just a scary thing to be able to look at as a father... And then look at my wife and I'm like, you know, there's probably a reason why she won't wear hijab. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you're running, you have all these things going in your, uh, in your head. And it's just, honestly, the root of everything comes down to white supremacy and racism. The same faction, the same ignorance, the same ecosystem of hate and ignorance is going to infect not just Muslims... They're going to infect people of L G B T Q backgrounds, Latinx. I mean, they're going to go after anything and everything, and whether they pick a pick pick it off one at a time or not, um, and the whole uh, Second Amendment group comes from, uh, 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 comes from some of these people as well. Now, I'm not going to say all of them are, but you know you find a lot of these things happening on the far right, you know. Yeah it's it's not e- it's it's not hard to do that math and so literally it's like as a muslim i'm like okay there are people in here doing uh, 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 in the fight we don't have enough muslim voices we need the muslim voice on the ground um i prefer to be zakar more often yeah. <laughs> because he's way better spoken <laughs> but at the same time you know it, it's it was an urgency to be able to get out there and also be uh, a Muslim voice representing a civil uh, a system of civil liberties and protections in here and not just being doing it solo but working in conjunction with other groups that are focusing on the same did civil you, liberties did you
1: issues. get a sense after I mean after the series of incidents I mean the max train was just sort of the most horrific of of many things that happened including you know the attack in the restaurant in northeast alberta mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know people um you know, going into mosque and things. Did you did you get a sense that p- the community in general was experiencing a heightened level of anxiety? Like yeah. There's something something's changing here and we are now we now have to either not dress like we would before or 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 be more quiet or compliant. I mean what what was the sense during all that in the community in general about this? I'm, t- I'm trying to get a, a picture yeah. of like the wider impact not just on the girls on the train, but just sort of the you know. Yeah,
0: like no, the community was community was getting in shock. Everybody's starting to have the question, ask questions, and um, you know rumors starting to spread as far as you know uh, be, uh, being identified as a Muslim or not. But I don't think it hit the community as a fear of being identified. But hopefully, what I saw was the fact that we are still going to be Muslim, we're still going to maintain our way, we're just going to be very cautious about how we move around and where we go around. Um, you know, being afraid to get on the tra- get on a max train and head in that direction, you know? I mean, there was a lot more caution as to where you travel and how abouts you go, and it was being talked about in our community centers, you know, about... Uh, uh, about making sure that you know you you understand where you're going and who you're going with and and, and just better ideas of protections. Uh, I felt like the women were probably a lot more stronger than the men uh, during this. We were definitely trying to look at an issue and see uh, and, and at least personally for me I can speak that we're seeing like okay well, uh, this has happened. Uh, it, it's pretty horrific. Um, w- and worrying about our women, worrying about uh, uh, about the kids that would be identified as such. But the women, they're the ones that are wearing the hijabs, and they're like, you know, they're soldiering on. They're like, you know, we'll, we'll be fine, you know. I just... There was great solidarity, but also at the same time, the thought of caution was going around.
1: Well, I mean, the reason... I, I mean,
0: the community was... The community was having a big conversation at that point. Sure. a conversation that they didn't have for a long time. Probably, yeah. maybe not since 9-11. Well,
1: that's the sense. So I, I've done a couple of interviews around this uh, with folks in the in the Muslim community at, at MET and a few other places, and the the kind of general response I get is, you know, there's always been this you know, notion that you're, you could be a target at any time, but it just raised the kind of anxiety level that... It raised it. Not only is this a, a vicious reminder, but the the, the the shift in the administration means more is coming. Yeah. It's not just like, oh, here's a reminder of my vulnerability in, in white supremacist right. America, for lack of a better term, but that's really the way to characterize it. But we got to steel ourselves up because...
0: I was taking a pessimistic approach when it came to this, and I wasn't all too optimistic when this happened. And I did not want to become the alarmist but at the same time um, I wanted to increase the conversation within our communities that um, we need to start not necessarily having just these conversations within ourselves, within our own community groups, but as a whole as Muslims and um, I felt like there needed to be again, you know, not just worrying about how the community feels at the moment, but it happening again, and it the propens- the potential of it getting worse yeah. is absolutely there. Um, two days after, there was another hate crime incident that happened uh, on uh, in uh, in southeast. Um, you know, with a, a couple driving in their vehicle, and uh, and a man starts two days after. Two days, I remember. Two days I'm after, right? Shoot them. The Sorrel guy, and so, and and he's in the middle of sentencing right now. So that's that's all fine and gravy. But at the same time, you know, um, I I just think that there need the organizing effort not just to help the community heal um, and help them. God damn you! <laughs> yeah,
1: community. Um, so so <laughs> you know, reason I, um, you know, there's this new buzzword now that's been around but you're hearing a lot of this the, the the phrase resilience building resilience building community capacity how do we make ourselves stronger in the face of what's coming our way and I and the resilience is always there I mean the communities are able to respond in ways that that you know they always have whether it's in their faith or you know m- meeting and talking and and I, I'm, I'm trying to get a sense that in the and there was a little bit of this after nine eleven, and and you know nine eleven was complicated by the Iraq War and the kind of weird message that was sort of sent out to a lot of people that Iraq had something to do with nine eleven, and so it was yeah. you know all that sort of so that made that made things pretty bad. Right. But there wasn't a sense that the the bigotry was even though it was facilitated by the people on the top, it wasn't coming from the top.
0: Right. Well, you know. Who all that was speaking to, to me, was just speaking to people who didn't have access to the level of, I guess, education that allows critical thinking to grow. Sure. Right? Uh, I like to say, personally, that the Republicans are trying to destroy the educational system (laughs) so they can maintain and grow their constituency. Um, All these years that... (laughs) You know? All these years of... uh, of of just bullshit that came from um, the Iraq War, post nine uh, eleven, Patriot Act, all this stuff. Um, it didn't. It, it to me it was just the long con, right? Mm-hmm. It was, it was basically there. It was floating, and it and we're batting it. You know, uh, we're batting it down. We're uh, we're uh, we're having these conversations and. We're trying to uh, basically talk off these points and stuff like that. And you felt like at that time it was pretty bad. But now that you have what we have now, you have an imbecile administration that we completely lost to. We lost to a bunch of idiots.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know? and And now you have their base constituency that now feels emboldened to actually now actually feel like they can have an opinion and say something that they think is absolutely smart and credible, that is thoughtless and baseless, you know. Um, I feel like all these years were spent talking to this crowd, but they didn't feel like they had the voice to speak, and now they suddenly do because they have their idiot poster child up uh, as president.
1: So how does the community, in the face of that, your community that you work with, build that resilience? I mean, what... By focusing on our rights. It seems like, you know, heavily... Skewed. I mm-hmm. mean, it's because... I mean, I love the notion that now that white people are somehow oppressed because they are using that now to be even more oppressive. Um, that it, it just... Isn't. Oh, yeah,
0: we're trying to take their guns away so that way we can remove their tools of fighting oppression. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We take, and we're canceling Roseanne Barr so they now don't have a voice on primetime TV. and <laughs>
0: I just can't even believe that we got that win that quick yesterday. That yeah. was, I mean, my head is still spinning for Well, me.
1: that's the sign that there is right. there is this movement in the other direction. Right. right, But I just, you know, in terms of the community, I'm just, I'm just thinking about this on purely an emotional yeah. level. Because there, yeah. there are strategies like, let's change the laws or let's fix the, the education system. The community didn't but have
0: the tools necessarily to continue to deal with something like this if it happened again. Hmm. They didn't have... They. Well, the what, are, what are those
1: tools? I mean, what, do you see, what are the tools? The to tools with
0: that? is being able to say, okay, um, there's a federal system that's kind of coming down upon immigrants. Uh, that could be my family, whether Yemeni. You know? I mean, it's, you have really, really good people, right, that are now suddenly being able to say that were once very comfortable in their upper-middle-class lifestyles, uh here in Oregon uh, particularly around Portland metro say that okay well um my wife's brother can't come here from Yemen um you know a mother is here currently from Somalia and uh, as uh, as a former refugee in asylee, and she now has zero hope with this muslim ban of bringing her kids out of a refugee camp that's in Kenya um now she the buck got passed for the last five years that she's been trying to get them but now the hopes are dashed and cancelled and we're waiting on a, on this carrot on a string uh, with the Supreme Court I mean I think that there is not enough access for Muslims to understand how to go about the fight uh, that, and that allows, that becomes a cyclical <coughs> reaction without being able to have the resources or understand what the resources are. I think that's exactly what Casey has dedicated his life towards, you know, is making sure that uh, immigrants, refugees, asylees, TDS <coughs> recipients, that they are. That they become not only aware of what their rights are, they don't have to get integrated into society more than they have to understand how society revolves and how their rights are protected over here, and how they are welcome to be who they are, and 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 still make it work living here in America, and uh, by no by being able to take on leadership roles and responsibilities within their communities as they understand the system. See, so providing people a base knowledge of. Their rights is to me is where it starts. Um, Otherwise, if you're too comfortable and you feel like you don't need to understand your rights, or you or that there's an organiz, you don't need to know that there's an organization out there that can help you uh, uh, protect your rights. I I understand the emotional aspect of things. I may not be describing the emotional aspect of it well enough simply because I'm really excited about the aspect of providing that solution to the community. The emotional aspect, these people are going to be impacted again if nobody's there standing up for their rights and then going out into the communities and doing Know Your Rights for these specific communities. Know Your Rights workshops have been going around for a while. Deb Kaludny does amazing work with that. Mm-hmm. As many people do amazing work with know your rights workshops. ACLU does amazing work with know your rights workshops, but it doesn't but it'll connect to communities that probably want to know more about their rights that are already familiar, that may, that aren't necessarily threatened. Um, yeah. white, I see a lot of people white people that were in the recent know your rights workshops and stuff like that, for instance, right? But where is that happening with Muslim communities here in Oregon? I mean, where is that happening with refugee and immigrant communities here in Oregon consistently? Where, and providing leadership development and training for becoming community organizers. Where is that happening in these communities? And I, that's what's between Zakir, Casey. That's, that's exactly what these two guys are trying to engineer within the communities you know global civil rights protections as well as community based yeah. approaches. And you know this
1: is I mean this is the theme of this whole conversation that I've been trying to have with people which is these are the things that I take for granted and I you know I could do it because it's interesting and it's good to know and I can go to a work- workshop because it's always good but it, it it's not a matter of life or death for me or my family being it, to be able to be together and I think that's the difference is that people uh, people in targeted communities, I mean, you, if you're targeted, first of all, there's an emotional impact of feeling like you're targeted, but there are things that you have to do. And I'm not, A, I'm not targeted, so I'm not emotional around that issue, and B, I don't have to do anything. Yeah. I literally don't have to do anything because, um, I mean, you know, it could happen to anybody, right? It could happen to me. My rights could be taken away as well, but yeah. it's, it's not as a pressing issue um, where I'm seeing it kind of happening all around me. And I think that, that's the emotional thing, is that I'm not seeing it around me, uh, among people who look like me. Now mm-hmm. I'm married to a, you know, an immigrant who has yeah. a green card. So in her family, we're, we're very sensitive to the fact mm-hmm. that it's very, that people may disappear. Uh, and so because of her, it's always, you know, again... You become sensitized to the the women in your life. I'm much more aware of it because that is my family. But if I wasn't, you know, it would just be sort of another thing to think about. But But you,
0: I mean, you've you've had a certain you've had (laughs) you've had the the capacity to think consciously about understanding the difference between. Um, uh, 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 racial lines you know you have that background sure, you know the amazing work that you've done with white supremacy and stuff like that you know yeah but my
1: point is that i, cho- I, I choose to do it but i, I don't feel I'm, I'm doing it because i think it's important and because i care about the state of the world but it's it's not as directly impacting me I could, you know, when I moved to Portland, I, I, I took two years off of white supremacists and studied gang members <laughs> just because I was sick of Nazis. Because I, I could do that. It wasn't, you know, sort right. of my neck that was line. Well, online. I can't. <laughs> yeah,
0: right. I can't unplug, and I don't think I ever will. Oh, Jesus, please help me not to become an asshole.
1: Thanks, Mob. Man, I'm glad we have people like Seemov Husseini in our community. That guy really uh, is not only committed to this issue, but gets out in front of it in a way that that just needs to be done. So I think every town (laughs) needs someone and some folks like him. Uh, to do that work, not just the Muslim communities, but all of us as a whole, uh, you know, this is the climate that we're in, so we really have to be vigilant and work together, and man, that guy does it. Afterwards we had sort of a normal conversation that parents have about getting our kids together and comparing notes. Sorry I was coughing a little bit during that. I am in the midst of uh, allergy season. and Some of us suffer more than others, I suppose. Uh, Fortunately, there's lots of medications available over-the-counter now that I am currently ingesting, so no sneezing or coughing. Hey, uh, thanks uh, to C-Mob. I want to provide some links to CARE, uh, his organization, uh, and some resources around this issue of dealing with Islamophobia. I also want to thank Jared Mess, as always, who provides our theme song. We'll give you a link to his tunage. And if you like this podcast, Um, Like it, just like it Or subscribe, or do whatever you're supposed to do Uh, We've got more conversations I'm going to try to be a little bit more frequent With uh, posting these podcast episodes um, Now that school is about to be out So, right on You know, it just seems overwhelming at times There's just so much work to be done on the stuff We just keep trying to get pieces of it Like this podcast You know, every time I do another conversation I feel like I get another piece of the privilege puzzle Worked out But it it is a long haul. But don't worry, you know what I like to say, we're all works in progress, so let's get to work.